All right. Hey, why don't you uh, grab your Bibles if you have them and turn to the book of James with me. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We would love to loan you one if you like. Most of you know the routine. You just have to raise your hand high in the air and Josh will be happy to let you borrow a Bible so you can follow with us. We have been making our way through this great letter in our series in James, just called Faith That Works. We're here in chapter 2 now and picking back up really on a topic that James has started in, actually back in chapter 1 a little bit, but is developing in chapter 2, and that's just the idea of playing favorites in church and how we really shouldn't be doing that. And uh, and he has more to say, and so we're going to unpack the rest of what James has to say and look at, okay, how does that apply to our lives, and what does that mean for us here um, you know, as Christians and as a church as well. So, James chapter 2, if you're there, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to read from 5 all the way to 13. And I'll do a little bit of a, of a review of context, especially since we have a number of visitors this morning. Again, we're blessed that you're here. James, inspired by God's Spirit, he writes, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do not they, speaking of the rich, blaspheme that noble name by which you're called? He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, quote, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you don't commit adultery, but then you murder, have you become a transgressor of the law. And here's his application. It's real simple. James says, so speak and so do as those who be judged by the law of liberty. In this very glorious statement, he says, for judgment, is without, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, and yet mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen? Amen. All right, would you uh, pray with me as we ask God to help us to make sense and apply his truth this morning? Father, we're grateful for the morning, the blessing that we can gather together in person. Lord, we, we pray once again as we see the, the cases of COVID uh, rising and uh, along with that, uh, there's a lot of uh, emotion and frustration and worry and fear for some. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us just to keep a cool head through it all. And we certainly pray for health and protection and wisdom, Lord, and guidance. And, and Lord, just your favor to be upon uh, those uh, just who are sick and here in Japan and Okinawa as the numbers rise. Lord, I'm reminded of the scripture of how Jeremiah came and, 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 he, and he looked at the potter and, and it was just this beautiful example of you, the master craftsman working on just his craft and the, the idea that, Lord, we, we are the clay and you're the potter. And Lord, this morning we, we pray that you would make us pliable, that by your... Uh, Spirit, Lord, you would shape and you would um, work in our hearts and our lives, our mindsets and heartsets to make us like Jesus. 
And Lord, by faith, we say thank you for how you'll speak, how you'll move, and Lord, and what you'll, you'll do in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Amen. All right. Would you take a moment and greet somebody, especially if they're new, and just say welcome and maybe introduce yourself. And... It's been said, uh, you, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Uh, and I don't know if that translates into Japanese. Uh, I think there's some truth to that statement. Uh, obviously, even for us as a church, we want to make a, a good first impression and um, you know, be loving and welcoming and warm and, and all of these things. Uh, but the prevailing wisdom of the day that goes along with that statement that... Uh, never get a second chance to make a first impression is that you then you want to make a good first impression because first impressions you know they matter and they count uh, those who study such things say that with every new meeting that you have and every new encounter and introduction uh, immediately people will begin to make an evaluation of you based upon your appearance and your dialogue and, and those that study those things say it happens anywhere between seven seconds and two minutes of your uh, interaction together. Now, I don't know about you, I, I've been with others uh, upon meeting them, even maybe there's times where, you know, uh, an occasion where someone will say, oh, I, I don't know that, I don't know about that person. And I'm like, what, you just met them, how can you say that? Like, oh, I just know these things, you know. And, and, and I think there's been times for me where I think, ah, I didn't really click with that person, they, maybe, you know, they're just, just, there's something off there. But then have you ever found the occasion and all of a sudden, two months later, you're like, oh, they're my best friend, you know. Uh, you, you, you become besties and, uh, and, you know, sometimes I hear these things where people start laughing. They're like, oh, yeah, look, I met you. I thought you hated me or uh, I thought you were a jerk or you're a snob, you know, and all of a sudden, they're, you know, you become best friends. That happens. Sometimes we, as we talked before, if you were with us last Sunday, we, we can make the wrong first impression, right? We can have the wrong impression of people sometimes. And, and, and that point, I think, helps to serve what James is trying to say here about us being careful when we make judgments based upon appearance and the first impressions that we have with others. Now, specifically, James, in context, is addressing the issue of, of judging people based upon uh, what you think their bank account looks like. And along with that comes them playing favorites with those that seem to have some money and those who don't seem to have some money. Now, we made the assumption together that the reason that James is writing these things is perhaps it was something that was happening with the original audience. That the reason he's talking about it is because it's something they needed to hear. And it was an important matter of holiness and also a matter of really potentially damaging uh, the witness of the church of God's intent for what the church should be and how the church should act. We talked last Sunday, and I'll repeat some of the things that I said last Sunday, but you know, the way of the world in their day was no different than the way of the world in our day, where preference and privilege were given to the wealthy and the powerful people, uh, celebrated celebrities, 
You know, they chased after those that had popularity. And it's no different than the world today. It's usually those that have money, those in power, those that are celebrities, right? Even social media, they tend to have the most followers. People fawn over them. Oh, I have a firsthand experience of this. Uh, some years ago, before my wife and I were married, we were dating. We were on a date at Disneyland in Southern California. Uh, so I have to let Equay know this is in my notes. So this is bonus material for you guys, second service. Um, so we're on this date, and uh, we're sitting outside in this, uh, at a restaurant, and there's this little planter and a gate area, and we're, we've ordered lunch. And, uh, and so we're sitting across from each other, and all of a sudden, I see her eyes get wide as saucers. And she's not looking at me, though. She's looking past me. And so as I look to see what she's looking at, I turn this way, and I see uh, a, an actor by the name of Dean Cain. Anybody remember Dean Cain? He played Superman. Uh, for you younger people, you have to Google him later, okay? <laughs> my kid's are like, that old guy? Yeah, well, my, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, had hots for him. So there he is in the flesh. And, uh, and so as I'm looking and I see him walking and all of a sudden he, he's coming, he's walking, walking, and he's going to take this turn. I look to my chair and Christy's out of her chair and she's climbing over the planter, <laughs> over the six foot fence. No, I mean, it's like a three foot fence. But she ditched me. The true story. She, she, she scaled this wall and then took off following after so I can say, oh, my girlfriend left me for Superman, you know, so... And it was just like the movie, I was there by myself with an empty seat, and the waiter came, I'm like, I don't know, she, she took off, so. <laughs> Praise the Lord, she came back, though. <laughs> but that's the world, right? We chase after celebrity. Uh, James is addressing this to a degree, this breach, if you will, of cultural practices that has made its way into the body of Christ, that's made its way into church. And we made this comment last Sunday. Listen, gang, there is no room in the body of Christ for discrimination of any kind. There is no room for racism, elitism, any division based upon externals. Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 28, and he says, Therefore now there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither male or female, there is neither slave nor free, but we are all one in Jesus Christ. Now in context, understand that, when it comes to the acceptance and the adoption into the family of God, there is no distinction. God doesn't play favorites. God doesn't pick and choose based upon those things. And so now it's in these verses that are before us that will unpack the rest of what James has to say and add and expand our understanding of God's heart for well, for us, and how we're then to treat people around us. So, as we'll do, we'll just take this verse by verse and line by line. He says, listen, verse 5, my beloved brethren. James, although he's mid-thought, kind of pauses, if you will, and he grabs, you know, he makes a, a, a verbal attention getter. And that word listen basically just means listen up. He's saying, hey, pay attention. Jesus did that often. He would say, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you. It's the idea of saying, hey, take notice of what I have to say here. 
And once again, he calls them his beloved brethren. We made note of this before. James has some hard things to say at times, but he wants to affirm his relationship with them. He says, listen, I have some hard things. They're going to be hard for you to hear, but the only reason I'm telling you is because I care about you. I love you. You're family to me. And so there are going to be some things that you may not like that I have to say, but it's still good. And that's true for all of us. So listen up, my beloved brethren. He says, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? James is going to continue to make his point, and he does so in this grammatical way of, of phrasing his points into rhetorical questions. And there's three of them. It's verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7. And the answer, of course, is assumed. The answer would be like, well, no, or yes, in this case, because he's asking it in the negative. And so it's a grammatical device designed really to get us to think. That's the idea. Certainly he wants to be uh, the giver of information, but at the same time he wants to engage the reader to think about the things that he has to say. And, and that's important for us, by the way. You know, we come to church, we open the Word. Certainly it's informational, but God's desire for us isn't just to have data facts. It's not just to have more knowledge. But really it's to have a growing relationship with the Lord. And that with that, you and I would engage our brain, right? Our faith isn't a, a leap into the dark. It's a, if you will, it's a walk in the light, it's not a like check your brain at the door and come. It's bring your brain in. We're called to worship God with all of our strength and heart and, and, and mind. And so James is engaging their thinking. He's made some points, but now he's going to say, hey, listen, think this through with me as he asks these questions. And the context of these questions come from the previous verses where James already told us plainly, Playing favorites is not for the family of faith. And he gave an illustration. Which is interesting to me because it, it reads almost as though it's a hypothetical. He says, for if, so here's the situation. For if this guy, this rich person comes in and they have gold rings, they have nice clothes. right? My 15 year old would say they're all dripped out. You know, that's not the words I use. <laughs> they come in and you, and you say, hey, here's a great seat for you. And then the next person comes in and they're poor by appearance. They're disheveled. They're not, they don't dress as nice. And then you say to them, well, why don't you sit in the back? Or there's really no seat for you, so you can just sit on the floor. James' initial indictment is, haven't you just shown favoritism? And it's wrong? You're not reflecting the heart of God when you do that? And he points us to Jesus right off the bat for those of us who hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, who God himself was a God that showed no partiality. For when you look at Jesus and the life of Jesus, and that's really what G James is doing, go look at Jesus. And he becomes our example of how then we should treat other people. 
Jesus, the creator of the universe, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, our God who owns cattle on a thousand hills, the purveyor of the riches of heaven, and yet the Bible says that he clothed himself with our human likeness. That he came to earth. One way you can even say is he condescended himself and took on the likeness of man. And he lived in the same physical body and went through horrible things. And yet, when you look at his life, he treated others with dignity and compassion and respect and grace and mercy and kindness. He gave dignity to the poor, to the disenfranchised, to the children, to women, to other cultures and ethnicities. It was Jesus who said, love your enemies. And just We talked before, right? radical of his day, maverick of his day. So James adds to this thought, and he says, hey, look around you. Who is God picking to be part of his family? Has God not chosen the poor? Now, when he makes this statement, understand he's not making a dogmatic exclusive as though God only picks the poor. But he is making a point to say, God's criteria of those who've become part of his family is not like how the world picks and the world divides. Even Jesus, when he came, Jesus wasn't born in a palace. When he launched his ministry, he didn't recruit from the wealthiest. He didn't go into the palaces and the temples. He wasn't the political and established leaders of his day. They said, hey, I want you to be part of my team. I have this campaign. We're going to change the world, and I'm looking for world changers. Now, you, you know who he picked. It was, the, it was the fisherman. It was a despised tax collector named Levi. who goes by Matthew. He even had a rebel part of his team. A zealot. It was a motley crew that Jesus gathered and picked. It was the poor. It was the uneducated. It was just, it wasn't the noble. It wasn't the elite. It wasn't the wealthy. And again, by the way, it's not to say that God only chooses the poor. Please understand, James isn't making a dogmatic statement of absolutes. He's describing, he's describing the usual. And, and Paul and Paul echoes the same thing. When Paul writes to the Corinthian church, if you're familiar with this, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. I love that portion. Where Paul writes, he says really similarly, hey, hey church family, consider your calling. Consider who you are, how God's picked you and chose you. And he, and he says it this way, not many of you are wise. <laughs> not many of you are rich. Not many of you come from, uh, you know, a wealthy status. So it means there are some, it's just not many. 
He says, but God's chosen the foolish things of the world. God's chosen the weak things. God's chosen the base things, the lowly things. And I love that. It's part of, that's my life verse. God's chosen the foolish things. I want to make a t-shirt. It's my t-shirt. And so it's not that God exclusively picks the poor, but they tend to be the majority. That's the idea. And why is that? And please understand, too, the, the culture in James's day, very unlike the culture of our day in this regard, similar in many ways, but different in this way. You know, today we tend to have a, a, a broader middle class. And even within the middle class, there's different, right? There's kind of an upper middle class and then lower middle class. And then the wealthiest of people and then the poorest of people. In James's day, there's generally just two. There's a really narrow middle class. There was just rich and there was poor. But the majority were poor. That was the majority of society in James's day. And so we have some insight, really, from a conversation that Jesus has with this young man that we often refer to as the rich young ruler, recorded in the Gospels. And, and in Matthew chapter 19, the dialogue that Matthew records for us, and if you give me a little bit of of grace and liberty. I'll just paraphrase how this goes down. This young man that we meet, we realize he has a lot going for him. Uh, He's wealthy. He's a man of influence. Uh, He has some position and he has youth. That's why we call him the rich young ruler. And we also understand he's religious. And so he comes to Jesus and and he's wanting more. There's Something in his spirit that realizes, okay, it's not just religion. Because Jesus says, okay, he kind of gives them this quick litmus test. If you do these things, and the guy says, oh, I've done that since, I was, since the youth group. I'm a good kid. But the Lord discerns. He realizes, okay, here's the thing you have. Here's what you need to do. Go sell all your stuff on uh, Jerusalem yard sales. And the money that you make, you give that to the poor, and you can follow me. And if you're familiar with the account, you know that that young man didn't follow him. It says he left grieved. And the Gospels tell us, it gives us the commentary, because he had many things. And then Jesus has his own commentary. He turns to the disciples and he says, I tell you guys something. It's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are kind of blown away by this. And I suggest to you that the reason he says that, exampled by the rich young ruler who was unwilling to let go of those things that really had a hold of him. That he idolized money and things and possessions. He was unwilling to let that go to follow the Lord. And so we get a commentary then. And we realize that, right? I don't know about you, I know in my life when things are going well, when I have a little extra in the bank, and we have some, you know, what we call discretionary income. I know from my own heart that my my prayers generally aren't as urgent. 
I, I can tend to just rely upon the credit card or my bank account or, oh, you know, as though all my problems will just be solved by money. You know, you, you extrapolate that out or people who have a lot, then sometimes they don't think they have any needs then. Like, I don't have that need. I'll just solve it with what I already, I, I can be, fix my own problem. And so it's generally those that don't have a lot. Right? Generally, it's the materially poor, the monetarily poor that understand the concept of depravity, to have no resource, to have nothing. And then the spiritual truth of that, what it means to have nothing spiritually. It's those who think, oh, I got everything I need. And even Jesus, see, the religious leaders of his day criticized him for eating with the sinners and the tax collectors and the, you know, the, the people that they would kind of thumb their nose at. And Jesus engages them. And he says to them, healthy people don't need a doctor. It's sick people that do. I haven't come to call those who think they're righteous. But I've come to call those who know they're sinners. Now again, it's not impossible in fact, I would say it's a function of the Holy Spirit, of why God has sent the Spirit into the world. It, it's God's Spirit who desires to open our eyes and our hearts to the reality that we are spiritually bankrupt, that we're depraved, that my heart and your heart is wicked, it deceives us. And we come to the reality that, man, we're spiritually bankrupt regardless of what we have materially. Spiritually, we have nothing. And so notice with me, too, that the way that he phrases the question in the negative, so has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? And the answer is, well, of course he has. Again, not exclusively. The other thing I want to note with you this morning is, notice that it, it's God who is chosen. It's God who do, does the choosing. And God's choice, by the way, it's not based upon your finances or your education or your vocation or anything external. It doesn't matter how old or young you are. It doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl, the language you speak, the passport you hold. It doesn't matter your nunchuck skills. None of those things matter. There's no prerequisites. The qualifying criteria. Jesus says, you come as you are. The invitation of the Lord. All those who are thirsty. All those who are tired. All those who are hungry. Again, it's when we realize how we're poor in spirit. So he doesn't choose based upon outward appearances. We do. We do. God told the prophet Samuel, uh, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Now, our time this morning, we went out time to park and talk about all of the idea and concepts of God's sovereignty and the election of God. I encourage you to read Ephesians chapter 1. But, but let me also summarize it this way if I can. Although I, I realize there's, there can be more to be said about it. But here, let me just, you know, sometimes people... Uh, there's a debate and, and a lot of heartache over the doctrine of God's election. 
to me, and maybe it's just because I'm, I'm a very simple thinker, I, I, I think it's easy. How, how do we know if God's chosen us? How, how do I know that? Here's, here's the easy answer. You ready? Choose God. How do you know that you're chosen? Choose God. And, and why do I say that? Jesus said it. In John chapter 6, verse 37, he says two things. And they go together, though. He said, everyone the Father gives to me will come to me. Right? So that, that's God's part. God knows. God chooses. God is predestined. Right? There's a foreknowledge of the Lord. I don't have that. You don't have that. Jesus says, everyone the Father has chosen will come to me. And then he adds this. And they go together. And all that come to me, I will by no means cast away. Okay. Well, that's our part. Come to the Lord. How do you know you're chosen? You choose God. We realize we're spiritually broke. We have nowhere else to go. And we come to Jesus. Who then, we become rich in faith. Heirs of the kingdom. What a beautiful thing that the Lord has promised us. Heavenly riches. Eternal riches. And it's a great descriptor. Again, God's definition of wealth and riches is not the same as the, as the world, right? Real, real wealth is measured by the currency of heaven. And the currency of heaven, is, we're told here, is faith. It's your faith in Jesus Christ that makes you rich. That's the true wealth. What awaits us in eternity, and hopefully you won't be surprised by this, it's not a giant pile of cash on the other side of eternity nor is it cryptocurrency. It's something far infinitely better. The treasures of heaven. To be with the Lord. To be with each other. Right? Over the years, you've heard me say two things for us. Families are made at the foot of the cross. It, at, the, at the foot of the cross, it is level ground. And the one thing that we make on planet earth that we get to take with us is relationships in the Lord. Like our relationships in the Lord are eternal. That's our currency. That's where we should be investing. Everything else, as Peter says, it's going to burn, baby. One day it's all going to burn. And so Peter asks the question, then how ought should we live? What should we be investing in? What should we be living for? And James, in the same way, reminds us it's not material wealth that makes us rich. It's being rich in faith. And yet you can, as I can, be, you know, easily mistake the idea that we want to chase after world's definition. We chase after trinkets and fail to realize the true treasure of God's kingdom. And as we chase trinkets, we waste time and energy, and sometimes we can even be guilty of placing relationships on the altar of financial gain, of material you know, uh, accumulation. But really, it's a sobering thought. To what extent do we do that? To what end? To what expense of your own soul? You know how Jesus phrased it in Matthew 16? What will it profit you if you gain the whole world and yet you lost your soul. What's your soul worth? 
What would a person exchange their soul for? And so, gang, I say this in love. Let, let's, let's reject the world's definition of wealth. And let's embrace, let's invest, let's pursue God's definition. Because your worth, your worth is not defined by your wealth. Your worth is not defined by your paycheck or what your bank account looks like, your portfolio. None of those things matter. Your worth derives from God himself. The fact that, that you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. The fact is, James is going to remind us that, that we are um, called by the noble name of Jesus Christ. God determines your worth. And as his creation, and as his kid, nobody has the right to tell you that your life is worthless. And can I say this? Not even yourself. Every life has value. Every life matters to the Lord. Only God has the right to appraise your life. And his appraisal, here's how much he loved you. He sent his own kid to die for you. faith in Christ that makes us rich. To be part of his family that makes us rich. Several years ago, I think maybe close to eight years ago now, I should have looked it up. Um, I, I had the great privilege along with our assistant pastor at the time, Kevin, and actually his wife, Katie, we, we got to go to Africa to do a pastor's conference. And it was a life-changing experience for me. I'd never been. I'd been to the Philippines. I've been to Mexico and other places. Um, of course, we did a missions trip to Hawaii, <laughs> suffering for the Lord in Hawaii. Uh, but in Africa, we got to go to uh, Uganda and Rwanda. And, and, and I, I don't know the right way to describe it. I, I was, I'll just say I was deeply humbled on a lot of different levels. On one level, I was very humbled because we were there for a pastor's conference and I was sharing the word at these different sessions with pastors who had been pastoring longer than I had. I felt like I, I need to trade places with these individuals. And I was deeply, deeply humbled because uh, a number of them had come from far away and a lot of them even walked in plastic shower shoes just to be there to be in fellowship, to hear the word of God being taught, to, to be in community. And they would sit for hours engaged. And, and how embarrassed I was for myself to think how trivial I can be about complaining about the silliest, and, and I'll say of myself, the stupidest of things. That I esteem my, my comfort and things that, you know, uh, make me happy. And here are these guys who came and they have little to nothing. I mean, we were worshiping on dirt floors, standing on a dirt altar. And it didn't matter to them. Full of joy. The Spirit of the Lord just sweetly moving. Oh, it was incredible. And how I wish I could take part of that back, you know, to, even for us. 
Men who had so little and yet rich in faith. It's this verse that reminds us of that. How God has brought us into these riches. So he asks this rhetorical question. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? The answer, yeah, God has. Then he asks the second one, verse 6. But then you've dishonored the poor man. Now he begins with an indictment, which is interesting to me. It's an indictment on a hypothetical. I thought he's just giving an illustration, but now we're guilty of something that seems to be an illustrative. And yet I think there's application there. If that's the way that you're behaving, then yeah, you've dishonored the poor person. It's no longer a hypothetical. It's no longer like, oh, imagine this happened. Sometimes we, we get in trouble for what somebody imagined or somebody dreamed. You ever get in trouble for like your spouse's dream? Like they dreamed that you were mean or you did something and then they're angry at you in real life. Like what's wrong? You're like you might dream you're a jerk. That's your dream. That didn't happen. Well, it's so funny. You guys know Josh, our youth pastor? So often, I guess, Anna has dreams about him. And so if you ask Josh, he says, dream Josh is a jerk. Because real Josh, you met Josh, he's super nice, right? The sweetest guy you ever meet. They'll say, dream Josh is a jerk. <laughs> well, that's all hypothetical. It's illustrative. Well, here, James gives this illustration, and yet he says in verse 6, here's an indictment, you've dishonored the poor. Well, that's true if they're guilty of the first part of it. And he adds this, again, this question, but do not the rich oppress you and drag you in, into courts? Now notice with me that James uses this word, you. It moves from illustrative to personal, applicational. He's talking to them. He's trying to get their attention once again. And this isn't just for somebody else. This is for you. This is for me. Sometimes we can hear things and immediately think, oh, this person, that person needs to hear this. Or you've been in church and then the pastor's saying something and then all of a sudden you nudge the person next to you. Are you listening to this? James is nudging all of us. Are you listening to this? It's you. And he says, again, the, the very people that you're making such a fuss over, you're trying to please, you're trying to honor, you're trying to give special attention to and treatment for. He says it's typically those people that they're the ones that treat you like garbage. Like I understand he's not making a, 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 a broad stroke generalization like every rich person is that way. Every rich person is suing you. Every rich person is oppressing you. That's not what James is saying. But he is saying context it's the common practice. It's typically those that have money. It's typically those that have resource that will sue people. It's typically those that have you know, financial ability to hire a lawyer and take you to litigation. And that was happening in James's day. It's happening something we see today in our world as well. It's those with the means that often you know, pursue these type of legal things. So he asked the question, trying to you want to honor the rich person, but you're dishonoring the poor person. You're actually dishonoring the very person that God honors. You're doing the opposite of God. 
And then he asks again, he says, do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you're called, that they referring to the rich? This third and final rhetorical question asked in the negative. As I mentioned earlier in James' day, there's no middle class like today. It's just basically rich and it's poor. And the demographic of the church was similar. But the world around them gave preference to those with money. The world around them gave pre- the world around them would jump over a fence at Disneyland and chase after Superman. Right? And so they're accustomed to that. And today we see that. There's executive class, first class, gold club, reserve status. Now outside of the church, that happens. And that happens in the workplace. And there are people that you network with and you hobnob, right? You rub shoulders, you, you, know, you, you strategically make these relationships. That's a regular part of the marketplace and maybe your industry and those are the things that you have to do. And so I'd say, okay, yeah, there's a place for that in the work environment, but not in the worship environment. That, that doesn't happen. There's no place for that in the church. And as James points out here, it tends to be those who have affluence that speak against faith, that come against the church. And he says, notice how James refers to it, refers to us as that noble name by which you're called. What a great descriptor, the noble name by which we're called. He began with Jesus, the King of glory. We hold the faith of the King of glory. And now, this noble name. This is our banner. This is our identity. We're called into the family of God. So let me summarize real quick and then we'll move quickly to this last section here that we're looking at. So James is basically saying, listen, if you treat someone different based upon appearance, you give preference to them or you dismiss them or you mistreat them, you're not displaying the heart of God. That's conduct on becoming a Christian. God doesn't roll like that. You shouldn't roll like that. Then he adds in that if you play favorites with people who have money, if you find yourself doing that, what you're really doing is just revealing the thing that you actually value. Like that's important to you and becomes evident the way that you treat people who have the thing that you like. And then the third thing I think he's saying, and I want to rephrase it a little bit if I can. I want to stretch it a little bit. The idea like, It's these very people that are mistreating you. It's these very people that come against you. It's these very people that that disdain you. We need to be careful when in giving undue attention to others who have demonstrated no genuine concern about you. Because that becomes the basis of unhealthy relationships where you set yourself up to get used, potentially abused, manipulated, because you're just trying to win and seek their approval or their attention, or you want to be in with them, and they have no regard for you. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a, there's a lane for us. When God, we're called to serve people. We're called to love our enemy. And there are going to be times where you serve someone, and they're not going to say thank you. Right? They're not gonna, there's not going to be reciprocal there. But the boundary line is God hasn't called you to remain in a place where you're being mistreated or misused and certainly don't remain in a place of you're being abused. 
I look at the Lord. I'll give you a quick example. Jairus says, hey, come to my house. That whole thing, remember, with the woman with the blood issue gets interrupted. He finally makes it to Jairus' place. He goes into the upper room. And there's a group there that are mourning. And Jesus says, it's okay. She's only asleep. And the group begins to scoff and mock him. And you know what Jesus does with them? He says, put them out. Put the scoffers and mockers out. And so there's a time where we we got to create distance and healthy boundary from people. The Lord did it. And so again, we want to be cautious in giving this undue attention to people who are trying to win their affection and win their approval, and they're the very ones who could care less about you. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law, verse 8, according to the scripture, then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You'll do well. But conversely, verse 9, if you show partiality, James doesn't pull any punches, right? He says, you're a sinner. You commit sin. You've transgressed. Now, here's what I love about what James does here, and I appreciate this. It was an issue that played out in their church and the way that they behaved, but the core of it was a doctrinal issue. The core of it was understanding Scripture. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, because what we believe will play out in how we behave. And that's why doctrine is important. That's why it's important to have good theology and good doctrine. Because you've met people, and I have too, seemingly well-intended, seemingly they love the Lord, and yet they kind of do some things that are a little goofy, a little odd, a little different. And you're like, why, why do you do that? And you come to realize, like, oh, they have a misunderstanding of Scripture. They haven't been felt a healthy diet of Scripture, of the Word of God. And so, by the way, that's why we give great attention to the reading and the exposition and the explanation, and hopefully if I'm doing my job, right, the application of Scripture in our lives. We don't want to just study these things. As James says, we don't want to just be hearers of it. We want to be doers of it. And if, our, if we come together and, and we leave with just more data, I failed you. We want to make sure we have doctrine, but applied then to how it lives out, right? It's faith with real, in real space, with real people, and real people are messy and works in progress. And so James rightly points us back to Scripture. And here's what he's basically saying. We should live by what the Word of God says. That's our standard. Where do we get this from? Why shouldn't, you know, if the world's acting this way, why can't we act the, that way? James doesn't say, because that's my preference. Because I think that's how you, we should behave. He says, no, this is doctrinal. This is scriptural. This is what God says in his word. And so he reaches for the gold standard of God's love and law. How do we treat other people? Well, we should treat them how we want to be treated. We should love people as we love ourselves. Jesus said the same thing. It's an Old Testament principle that makes its way into the crosses over into the New Testament. Jesus affirms it. The Gospels affirm it. James affirms it. In fact, James even calls it the royal law. The idea of like the golden law. 
But the Lord himself would say these things. To love others as we love ourselves. He says, you'll do well. But if you don't do that, then, well, what's the converse? As I mentioned earlier, he just says, oh, you've sinned. So he gives this illustration, and then he gives three indictments. The first indictment is, you've, you've dishonored the poor person. The second indictment is, you've sinned. You've transgressed. And I'll get to the third in a moment. And so very plainly, right? Very plainly, if you and I play favorites, it's not that like, oh, okay, maybe we shouldn't be doing that. No, we, we, we've sinned. Transgress means to cross over a known boundary line. There's the boundary line. Do not cross. You cross it. You've transgressed. Now, what do we do as Christians when we transgress? What do we do as Christians when we sin? 1 John 1, 9. That's our spiritual soap. Right? We confess our sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. We repent. Confess and repent. Own it. Make it right. Now please understand, he's writing to believers. This is not an issue of salvation. It's not as though all of a sudden you've lost your salvation or you're no longer part of the family. No, Christ paid for our sins. Our eternal state has been settled. You're justified in the Lord because of the sacrifice that Christ has made for you. And yet you know and I know, though, even after we've come to faith, we still live in this sinful body, in our sinful tendencies. We still fight against the flesh. We agree with Paul. There's these two wars, these members that are fighting within me. We've got to crucify the old nature. And so it's this constant battle. And when we sin, we acknowledge it, we confess it, we stop it. And then here's the third indictment. And it's interesting that he, it's almost though he escalates the argument. He says, Forever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of it all. For he who said, of course he's speaking of God, who God said in the Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. But if you do not commit adultery, but then yet you murder, he says, well, you, guess what? You've broken the law. It doesn't matter which one, you break one, you break them all. You transgress one, you transgress them all. Now this third indictment seems to be a weightier, a weightier one. And to me, I think like, okay, James, we got your point. Why, why, why do you need to add this particular argument to it? And here's what I want to suggest to you. Why? He doesn't tell us his intention. I suggest to you he does this because if you're like me, I have a tendency to dismiss things that I think aren't as bad. I'll weigh my sins. And I think, ah, that's trivial. We'll categorize them. And so for the person who's tempted to think, well, I didn't kill anybody. I didn't commit adultery. It's not that bad. James says, no, guess what? It is. <laughs> to the Lord, it is. You might want to dismiss the seriousness of the offense, but to the Lord, it's still an offense. Now, the consequence of that offense, that's a different conversation. The fallout. But unto the Lord, if we violate one part of it, we're guilty of breaking all of it. And again, if you're like me, though, I tend to write my own exceptions to policy. 
Ah, it's okay. God knows. <laughs> well, sin is sin still. And like all sin, we confess it and we repent from it. We're like, Lord, okay, I blew it. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. Like we can't pick and choose. That's the idea. People like to do that, don't they? And even for us as Christians, we like to do that. Well, this one's not that bad. Or we look at the world and think, well, this is how society is, and so I think it's okay. No, it's not your opinion according to the Scriptures. If you've been with us for some time, you've heard me say this before. You know, sometimes we approach the Word of God like a salad bar. Right? We have our own salad bar Christianity. Oh, I like this, and I like this. Right? Like you go to a salad bar. Like I go to a salad bar, I don't take beets, and I don't take those little corn things. They're an abomination, whatever those little corn things are. <laughs> and yet sometimes we approach the word that way, right? Oh, I like God's grace. I like forgiveness. I like blessings. Oh, but to humble myself, to submit unto the Lord, confess my sins. We, we, we tend to like pick and choose. It shouldn't be that way. I think it was Tozer that said, it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And included in that equation is then how we treat one another. How we treat one another. It's serious to God. It's as serious as murder and adultery, how you and I treat each other with compassion and respect. Oh, there's the bell. With a lot of grace for your pastor. That's how, you know, God cares. All right. Let me land the plane. Verses 12 and 13. Here's his application. So speak and so do as you should. If you're a child of God, you carry that banner, then that's the way that you should live. You're not under the old law, but we're under the law of liberty. We've been set free. Not free to sin, but free from sin. Free from the penalty of sin. And part of that equation, as Jesus himself would say, the way that you measure, it's going to come back to you. And so I'll just say it this way. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God is a merciful God. God has given you and me a lot of mercy. Amen? And if God has given you and me a lot of mercy and grace, we should give others a lot of mercy and grace. There should be a wide margin of mercy in the way that we treat others. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word as always the truths that are therein. And God, I pray that it's more than just academics of taking notes and word studies and grammar studies. But Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, write into the tablet of our heart, if you will, that this would become a part of who we are and how we act and how we treat people. And to know, Lord, that, that's how you treated us. That you yourself could be perfectly entitled to all of the accolades and honor and, and, and glory, and yet you humbled yourself. And with great mercy and compassion and love, you, you gave dignity and worth to people you encountered. For us who are called by that noble name, that we carry that banner, Lord, I pray that we would treat other people that way too. 
Lord, help us to have a wide margin of grace and mercy for people as you've had a wide margin of grace and mercy for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.